Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Future of Application Security. Today, I have Tim Kelly with me as a guest here. Tim is the Director of Security Engineering at WorkRise. Tim, welcome to the show. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me, Harshal. Excited to talk to you. Tim, I'm particularly excited about this conversation because this is going to be one of the unique episodes with a very strong intersection of data and how do we use data in the context of security programs, application security and product security specifically. But before we dive deeper into this topic, I would love for you to give a little bit of introduction about yourself. What do you do? Where do you work? And maybe talk a little bit about what WorkRise does. Yeah, for sure. So again, Tim Kelly, I'm Director of Security Engineering at uh, WorkRise. And WorkRise is a skilled energy staffing firm. They do a B2B component, uh, matching vendors to operators uh, for oil services, as well as uh, skilled laborers. So we built a whole entire platform around that. And uh, my job is to ensure that we're securing the, the platform and services and protecting uh, our customers' data. So as far as uh, yeah, security engineering, um, I do come from an experimental psychology background and got into data analytics. Uh, so I'm very much a logical type of person. I like to think about things through data and hypotheses. And so my, my domain specifically are around incident response, detection response, security analytics, vulnerability management, cloud security, product security, and application security. That kind of en- encompasses uh, the domain that I oversee at WorkRest. What an incredible background and combination of different things, experimental psychology, data, software development, and cybersecurity. That's amazing. Now, we were talking about this a little bit in terms of what do you actually define as application security or product security? It would be super helpful if you can you know, just share your perspective of how you define that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I found that application and product security are sometimes intermixed. And then we also sometimes forget that there's other specialties that some companies will make teams out of, like cloud security, identity, vulnerability management, cloud security. So my way of splitting up the difference between application security and product security is application security is securing the SDLC. So if you think about the life cycle of the SDLC all the way from design to coding to testing to deploy and operate, you need a way to inject security on top of that. That's application security. Your customers are going to be effectively engineers that are deploying code. Product security is going to be securing the product development lifecycle. So there you're going to be talking more about threat modeling, red teaming, bug bounty, looking at things from the offensive perspective and protecting customer data and thinking about the customer workflows and the security, things like MFA, identity, RBAC, and uh, things like that. That's awesome. Now, Tim, one of the things that is super interesting to me is going back to your background, you know, all of this experience around data engineering. And I'm a big proponent of using data to build and run security programs. And I am excited to dive deeper into that specific topic. So before we start into that data and security topic, I'd love to just understand a little bit more in terms of what does data engineering actually mean? Like when you were leading that function, what does that involve? Sure. That's um, in the simplest way. It's 
getting data from point A to point B and doing it at massive scale. So when I'm at, uh, was at Bizarre Voice and we're talking about 65,000 queries per second, you know, petabyte scale data, but it's the way to efficiently build and scale systems such that you can ingest data and then you can model and transform data so that you can be used efficiently and effectively downstream for your data scientists and analysts. And then, of course, from there, you have analytics and data science programs that can be built on top of that. Right. And there are a lot of use cases for these exact things outside of security. And there's obviously use cases inside of security, which we'll touch upon in just a minute. But outside of security, a lot of different functions primarily run their business on data. You have finance teams, sales team, even HR teams that make significant number of decisions based on data. Unfortunately, what I've found uh, being in cybersecurity for a long time is that doesn't happen very frequently. There's not many cybersecurity teams that make decisions actively based on data. There's a lot of data usage within security incident response and uh, operations and monitoring kind of functions, but not so much at a more strategic level. There have been some teams who are doing more and more about it, but I would love to just get your take on why is data important? for security here? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, there's a lot of talk about the security data lake. Uh, At least my feeds are are just full of talking about how can we get all the data in one place and break down silos? Well, this is a concept uh, probably in the mid 90s, you know, data warehousing and data lakes. uh, Businesses realized that they couldn't run financial reporting, you know, by pulling data from multiple thousands of databases across uh, an enterprise. And so over time, they realized they needed a single solution and uh, things like Hadoop sprung up, uh, Redshift and larger uh, warehouses at scale. And finally, as the technology matured, we have solutions like, you know, um, warehouses like uh, AWS's uh, security data lake built on S3. You've got BigQuery and you've got Snowflake and there's multiple security solutions that are uh, built on top of Snowflake. So now you have a way to put structured, unstructured, multiple data types into a very, very inexpensive data store. It's ridiculous. How you don't even think about the cost of it. You think about the compute. And so you separate out how much how much is it costing me to you know pull data and query it. And so you apply these same exact concepts that business have been using for the last 20 years on top of security. And then now you've got this modern security program of detection and response where you can either you know start building detections, anomaly detection, but you can also start mining insights. And so the way that I approach security, coming from uh, running SRE teams and DevOps teams, cloud teams, and then data and analytics teams, my approach to security was, and and I love the phrase, you can't secure what you can't see. So first, you have to know your assets. What is it that you're protecting? And one of the things I was curious about is like, what is the definition of application security? That's going to give us our intraday to say, like, here's all the things we're protecting. Okay, go find out what all the assets are. Well, how are you going to get all the assets? Now, how are you going to know what all your cloud resources are, your users, your identities, all of the software, so the code? You need to have a way to have visibility over that. So there you go. Your data lake is going to be your ability to correlate and pull disparate data sources in together to start to build a story. And so my approach was just go start looking at the data. What sort of insights can you see? And it becomes a very creative approach from an analyst's perspective. You just start seeing things in the pattern. You start seeing patterns in the data, whereas you may see, um, oh, I'm seeing lots of, you know, like a secrets maybe going through. I'm seeing um, running DLP scans on top of my data, and I'm seeing that secrets are going through my source code. I mean, 
there could be all sorts of insights and things that glean just from your experience. So that's was sort of my foray into building a security program where there was none. And then we gradually start shifting that left into detection response. And as we see, you know, anomalous or egregious behaviors in the data misconfigurations, we patch them and then we start building it into more of a proactive type of detection response program. Got it. That makes sense. So what I'm hearing is leveraging data, putting all the data into a data warehouse or whatever system of record is, it will potentially give you a lot of insights that you wouldn't know otherwise without looking into the data, especially multiple disparate pieces of data together. Okay. They're one of the reasons, at least my hypothesis is one of the reasons more people don't do it, more security teams actually don't do it, is because it's really hard. There's uh, the data warehouses as a technology that's very accessible. But then if you think about all of these security tooling, the DevOps tooling, code repos, cloud platforms, all of those things have, each of them have their own different data models, the different APIs and different you know, complexities with extracting the data and maintaining those data pipelines and scaling it, all of that stuff is it's not super easy. What challenges did you foresee when you were building out these types of you know centralized data warehouses, data lakes? Yeah, and I think that's, I would think of that as like a build versus buy decision. Uh, you could think, oh, I'm gonna have to build a bunch of containerized applications to deploy them and maintain them and then deal with the nuances of all these systems. That gets to be a very expensive proposition, not only to build it, but operating that or operating ETL pipelines, very, very expensive proposition. So the way that I would recommend someone approaching this is, you know, play to your strengths. What capabilities do you already have in your business as far as business intelligence and how they think about data? So in the case at WorkRise, we already had a data engineering team that was already leveraging Snowflake. We could rely on them to help us out with some of the provisioning as well as, you know, they're using tools like DBT and Fivetran. So if we needed any small amount of assistance of just managing the warehouse, which really was almost insignificant, we could do that. Then now we can start to share data among, because we have these a common language that we're using, common warehouse. And so most organizations these days are going to be using some form of data warehouse. So, you know, start there, see what do you already have and how can you play to your strengths? And then what are some of the tools and systems that you can get that can easily plug in? Right. That's awesome. And so when you're building all of these things, are there specific skill sets that you would need? Because especially within a security organization, there's so many diverse skill sets that we need, right? Detection and response is a different type of mindset versus SDLC security, which requires totally different skills. And GRC, again, is another function itself. So when you think about putting all of these different pieces of data together, what types of people do you need in your team to be able to pull it off? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things I like about more of the modern offerings of using a data warehouse is you need SQL and Python. So that's pretty ubiquitous, but that's not nearly enough. Okay, so you can be the best SQL report writer and best Python coder. Well, that's only going to get you so far. You got to have a, a high amount of creativity. So you've got to be able to see patterns and think about that and within a security context of what is it that I'm looking for? What are the risks that I'm trying to prevent? And then how do I build a system that's easy and has very low signal-to-noise ratio among that? So there's two skill sets there. One is, is a pure analyst, someone who's really good and adept and creative at seeing patterns through the noise. And they needed someone with uh, probably more of a, a data engineering type of background that can massage data, possibly uh, clean some data, build some additional ETL work, maybe do some custom ingest for you. There's still going to be times where tools are only going to get you so far 
or maybe you need to enrich uh, additional data such as like IP info or gray noise to improve the strength of your uh, signals. But then finally, the hardest part of the whole thing is determining what is important. And you really got to have a lot of experience in security. So you not only have to have these technical foundations, but you got to know what are my threats? What is the most important thing that I want to look for? And then you want to avoid the burnout, of course, in any detection response program there's a massive amount of noise and you need to be very conscious of your signal to noise ratio and make sure that you're looking at the things you really think are most important and actionable and you're measuring that. And if you get a poor signal, if you're getting a lot of noise, you need to do something about it because your analysts that are responding to these things will get burnout very, very quickly. And we know burnout is a whole other topic in security we could uh, <laughs> probably discuss. Right, right. Yeah. And we also talked about you know, putting types of data that doesn't traditionally fit into the analyst, you know, investigations and response, detection and response, but also things like cloud security data, application security or product security data, GitHub data, Jira data, all of that stuff, which isn't traditionally used in monitoring and response, but also is super valuable. And we were talking about this earlier. Are there specific use cases that you have seen by putting all of these different data together, AppSec data, for example, putting it into a single place? How can that help? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of touched on the the case of like, oh, in a sim and measuring your signal to noise ratio. But there's some other things using data to show the efficiency of your AppSec program. And so not only that, we can look at like your SAST and your DAS tools. Hopefully you're getting signals to those. Those are going to obviously have a ton of noise. Um, if you look at any dependency scanning tool, uh, they're going to give you a lot of false positives. So it's the same sort of issue. Are you fixing the things that are reachable? that have proof of concepts, that have high, high validity out of them. So as long as you have access to that data, one way that we look at, say, a vulnerability management program, so you have vulnerability management overlay on top of application security, we want to know where do we put the efforts in. So an application security program may have red team exercises. You may have third-party pen testing. You may have like a bug bounty vulnerability dis uh, disclosure program. Uh, you may have you know developer-found issues. If you're able to label and keep all of this information in the same place, then you can start to monitor the performance. Where are we getting the most value from our different testing sources? And are they actually being remediated in time? Then you can start to think about things like, you know, MTTR and then provenance and that sort of thing. So that's just another way of taking that same mindset and skill sets that we talked about, but applying it to the operational aspects. And a lot of the stuff then bubbles up to, you know, executive and uh, board level uh, type of reporting. Yeah. So that's super interesting to me. If you can influence other functions within the organization by leveraging this data, right? So you talked about provenance and hotspots of where the, the issues are coming from and things like that. Have you seen particular success in influencing maybe the dev teams or SRE teams or cloud platform teams by showing them certain types of data about product, app, cloud security? Yeah, one example would be like a Kubernetes monitor. You know, we were monitoring an example of this, like we're monitoring, we're collecting data on things in our CI, CD pipeline and say, well, let's shift right. Of course, we always want to shift left, but in this case, we shifted right and say, let's actually monitor specific clusters. Well, it turned out that we found out that there were all sorts of things were being deployed that we weren't even aware of. And so we were actually able to, you know, remove some services that probably shouldn't be running, but then also got greater visibility over things that weren't deployed in, say, the normal processor that had should have been uh, decommissioned. And so from there, you can also, you know, get things like um, if you run into a zero day, 
you want to know through data how effective were you were in patching. And so you want to have a tool that not only tells you when the zero day appeared, but how quickly were you able to remediate it. And so a lot of these questions you want to know ahead of time so that you've got the data to be able to answer those things to determine the effectiveness of your program. Right, right. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's when Log4j happened, this was one of the biggest challenges, which is most people were vulnerable in some form or manner to Log4j, but how quickly and how fast are you moving towards remediating the ones that were presenting the highest risk, right? That was a, a big project management nightmare for a lot of people. I've seen terrible spreadsheets with thousands and thousands of yeah. nodes and project management teams trying to track the remediation across the company and whatnot. It's a uh, it becomes a nightmare, if, especially if you don't even know what you have, right? If you don't, as you said, if you don't know what you're protecting, you can't really protect it. Right. That's actually where a shift right works really well, because just because you have a pull request and it's merged, how do you know that it was really deployed? And so as right. long as you got, if you got the additional backup of monitoring live environments and the data, then you can actually start to observe and see, okay, patch management is working and we can actually prove that these things, you know, have been applied. Yeah. And fundamentally, this was the reason why we started Tromso in the first place, because there's just so much correlation that needs to happen between what's happening in your code environment and what's happening in your cloud environment. Because at the end of the day, it's a risk, right? Attackers, they don't really care whether it's a, it's a software bug or it's a cloud bug, right? So why should we segment those things off into separate buckets? We should put all of this together and, and figure out what's really important, what makes sense for us to prioritize first. So then you've talked about the importance of leveraging data. You talked about some complexities associated with it. Do you believe that using this data-oriented approach has allowed you to move faster or be more effective or maybe rephrasing the question, what is the biggest benefit that you see by leveraging data across these different domains of security, especially application product security? What areas do you see as the, the most benefit coming in from? Yeah, so probably as my role of security engineering as a director, it, it would probably be building a roadmap. So if you look at like all of the possible things you could possibly do to secure an SDLC, intrusion detection, uh, and all the way down to the left, all sorts of uh, code scanning. I mean, you would never complete a program. There's just way too much to do. But when we start looking at the data, and we start looking at anomalous behavior and then correlate those with the threats, like the types of phishing attacks that we're getting or the types of malware that we're seeing coming in. Or, you know, we're looking at our edge network and seeing the type of fuzzing activity, the malicious activity that we're seeing through our edge. We correlate that with, uh, you know, the data that we have to then determine, okay, if we're going to secure the SDLC, what is the most important thing that we look at? And one example is pretty low-hanging fruit. It's like, oh, Secrets are leaking through or secrets detection isn't catching everything that's coming through. So we implemented uh, like GitHub Advanced Security Secrets Push Protection. We had that implemented for a year. I pulled data and I can see exactly the types of secrets that are getting blocked. And we had 100% success. So, I mean, that's like the, the perfect case where you have 50 secrets that are in your source code. You implement a solution, you measure it, and then you had 100% success. That's an incredible way to show ROI as well, right? Because in security, we are all kind of struggle to to justify that additional budget or justify ROI of uh, already granted budget. So this is the comparing the before and after and showing that improvement. That's phenomenal. I wish more of us did that. Yeah. You know, you can think when you have a known quantity for how long does it take to patch or rotate a secret? 
it's not as trivial as it always may seem. So, you know, you put a quantifiable number on that. Yeah. In terms of that quantifiable number, are you able to share any other examples of KPIs that you have felt are impactful? Sure. One is the going back into vulnerability management. I've been through a few phases of, of trying to get vulnerability management where, let's be honest, vulnerability management isn't fun <laughs> because you're going to developers and you're saying, you need to fix your stuff. And that's not really a good way. But I found that having them be an active participant and having regular meetings and you know taking some of the security champion type of democratization and vulnerability management, um, we realized that we can score and we can assess the severity and put an SLA on a vulnerability, but that doesn't mean it's going to get fixed. So what we've done is we took out of the GRC playbook. We now allow, uh, for example, during the triage process, the owner of a vulnerability can treat it, they can defer it, they can accept it, or they can escalate it. And this puts the power in their hands of having a conversation. So we say, we're going to treat it, we're going to fix it within the allotted SLA, we're going to defer it, we would like a little bit more time, we're going to accept this, we're not going to fix this at all, we don't believe it's really critical. Or if we disagree, we can escalate it to have someone sign off in a risk program. And so these are ways where we can start to track the efficiency of, again, this is, comes down to signal-to-noise ratio again. How many of the vulnerabilities at what severity are coming in are actually being treated? How many are the, is the team just deferring? And we can start to observe behaviors and they start asking questions. Are we seeing too many that are being deferred? Are we seeing too many that are being accepted? So that's a way that we kind of use use do a behavioral, I guess it would be a sort of user behavioral analysis on top of uh, vulnerability management. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, also measuring simple things like mean time to remediate, for example, like those things are super useful as compared to showing here are your 50,000 vulnerabilities, right? So it's a very different conversation to measure progress versus measuring point in time snapshot of volume, which may not be very effective. And I think every organization deals with this. If you have SEV1 being like hair is on fire down to SEV4, you tend to get this SEV3, SEV4 graveyard that doesn't get talked about. But by, you know, democratizing and putting a little bit of the power and tracking it of the behaviors, I think you can improve your vulnerability management program overall. Yeah, that makes sense. So as you look at the future of where security program is going, maybe at WorkRise, maybe just in general, what do you envision as the future of, you know, this space, AppSec, ProdSec, how you're going to call it? What are you excited about? Well, for sure. Of course, a lot of the observability pieces that I talked about, but just making it easier and a little bit more common to understand, do we have a common vernacular of what we mean by application security? Is it securing the SDLC? And then what are the best practices that we can then layer on top, depending on the business context and, and the needs? And then, of course, of all these things, how do we observe that we're actually doing the right thing? Just you know, patching every single dependabot vulnerability that comes up isn't necessarily the answer, but you've got to be able to show the ROI, the effectiveness of your program, that you're actually, you know, saving developers time. How do you prove that you're, you know, saving time, you're saving money, you're making developers more efficient, and that you're building those, you know, connections with the teams that you're a partnership um, in this. So those are the things I'd like to see improve and that I'm continually working on and I'm pretty passionate about. Phenomenal. Tim, this has been such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us on this podcast. Absolutely. And my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. 
If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.